We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. I wanted to quickly let you know about the release of the audio version of my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, narrated by David A. Knasser. If you want to support the show, you can buy it wherever audiobooks are sold. Links are also in the show notes. Now, on to my guest for today, John Deary. If you're an entrepreneur or a venture capitalist or an angel investor, this one is a must listen to. John Deary is founder and president of the Center for American Entrepreneurship, a research, policy, and advocacy organization dedicated to promoting policies and promote entrepreneurship. John has made a career of studying and working on policies and legislation to grow economies. After the Great Recession ended in 2008, John set out to understand why the economy was not bouncing back as quickly as everyone had hoped. That led him to leave his job as CEO of the Financial Services Forum to found his own organization dedicated to promotion entrepreneurship. According to the latest research, entrepreneurship and startups are one of the biggest factors in growing an economy and in creating more jobs. Yet recently, legislators in D.C. didn't have anyone seriously advocating for and teaching them 
about the importance of entrepreneurship. The legislation passed in response to COVID is just one example of the short-sightedness. While many businesses have been helped by the Paycheck Protection Program, a lot of startups and new businesses were left scratching their heads on if it could actually help them. John and his group have helped educate legislators on this and many other issues. Whether you're an entrepreneur thinking about a startup, an investor, or even anyone concerned about the future of the American economy, this information is something that you're going to want to hear. Now, let's get better together. John Deary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jari. Thanks for having me. Well, I really just appreciate um, you coming on. I think we originally got introduced through uh, Michelle Fishburne. Mm-hmm. And uh, my rule is that when Michelle says meet someone, I absolutely drop everything and meet it, <laughs> meet, meet them because she has never steered me wrong. And I'm really excited about her project. I had her on the podcast talking about it and her adventure, which I think aligns well with what we're trying to do in the world. And I, and you know, what, what you're doing at the Center for American Entrepreneurship, I, I definitely want to dig into. Um, but before we talk about that, I'd love to hear how you got to do what you're doing today. Sure. Well, uh, again, I appreciate the invitation. And um, I agree with you entirely that uh, uh, Michelle's introductions are um, are done with uh, meaning and, and import. Um, uh, I, I, too, am a fan of what she's doing now, uh, which for folks who are listening, she's traveling around the country and talking to average Americans and is really refinding the, the magic of America in ordinary people. And I encourage everyone to follow her. Uh, who we are now series on LinkedIn and elsewhere. It's really terrific. Um, I am a lifelong p- uh, public policy guy. Uh, I start. I I uh, I'm, I've always been fascinated by the the intersection of economics and government. Uh, I double majored in economics and government in college, and then I got my graduate degree in political economy. Um, started my career at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York which is the central bank of the United States and a fascinating institution. Um, I then went to a a financial and economic policy group called the Financial Services Forum, which uh, is a group of, um, is comprised of the CEOs of the largest uh, financial institutions in the United States. It's not a trade organization. It's a uh, an economic and financial policy organization. The CEOs organized themselves because they thought that as the, as the leaders of these large financial institutions, globally active financial institutions, that they had a lot to share with policymakers uh, about the uh, about the U.S. economy, the global economy, and it was uh, a real uh, privilege to serve as their policy director for 14 of the 16 years I was there, and then eventually as the CEO. Um, it was at the forum that I um, my career took this turn into entrepreneurship and innovation. Uh, and how it happened is um, after the financial crisis, which uh, given my uh, position at the forum, I had a ringside seat to and was very involved in the policy response. Uh, the Great Recession ended in the spring of 2009, officially. Uh, the economy started to grow again, but um, it was growing very slowly. So that by the summer of 2011, two years into the recovery, uh, the economy was only growing at about 2% a year, very, very slowly, and uh, unemployment was north of 9%. 
Uh, so 25 million Americans were either still unemployed or underemployed, not, notwithstanding the Herculean policy efforts that uh, uh, Washington had uh, had thrown at the problem. They had really thrown the kitchen sink at the problem from a policy standpoint. We just were not getting the kind of response uh, from the economy in terms of economic growth, job creation that everybody uh, wanted. Uh, and it occurred to me that uh, that the forum that policymakers were out of ideas, and that the forum uh, needed to do something to generate some new ideas for policymakers uh, with regard to economic growth and job creation. So uh, I went to the CEOs. I pitched that idea. They said, "Great, go do it." I had no idea what I was going to do. I should have thought about it before going to them with the idea. Um, uh, so I started doing my homework on economic growth and job creation and um, followed my nose uh, through the research and came to some research that was new at the time uh, that had been done by uh, some economists at the University of Maryland and the Census Bureau and the Kauffman Foundation and, uh, and other places around the country that showed the following three things that when you put them together are just wildly intriguing. One, new businesses account disproportionately for uh, innovation in the economy. And that makes sense. You know, when you think about it, there are really two reasons why somebody starts a new business. One is, is just to stop uh, working for the man and, and work for yourself. And the other one is you got something new. You got a new product, a new service, new twist on an old idea. The economics behind that innovation uh, is that we know from the great work of an American economist named Robert Solo, who won the Nobel Prize in 1987 for this insight, that innovation uh, is the driving force of gains in productivity, which in turn is the driving force of economic growth. So new businesses as the principal source of innovation are where the real action is in terms of driving economic growth. Secondarily or relatedly, the, the research showed that new businesses account for almost all of net new job creation. Now, a lot of people, including me, had trouble uh, wrapping their heads around that when, you know, when we first heard it, because don't older existing uh, businesses create jobs? Yes, they do. But they also shed jobs as they get more efficient, as they incorporate capital uh, technology automation, as they, as they uh, focus on the things that they're best at. They're always creating jobs, but they're always shedding jobs. And what the research showed is that uh, if you look at, at businesses older than five years old, regardless of the industry or how old they are or their size, on a in an aggregate basis, if you group them all together, just older than five years old, existing businesses and corporations actually shed on a net basis about a million jobs a year. So were it not for young businesses, uh, younger than five years old, the job space in this country would actually shrink. Wow. So new businesses are wow. pr the principal source of innovation, which drives economic growth and job creation. And here's the third uh, piece of the puzzle that I just, uh, I, I frankly didn't believe when I first heard it. New business formation in this country has been in decline for four decades. And not only is that happening in aggregate or, you know, as a nation, but the research shows that it's happening in all 50 states and it's happening across a broad swath of industrial sectors. Well, if new businesses are the source of innovation, economic growth, and job creation, and if new business formation is in decline, maybe that would explain why, <clears throat> notwithstanding the Herculean efforts of policymakers to accelerate economic growth and job creation, right. it wasn't working. Yeah. 
And what I eventually came to understand is basically policymakers in Washington were digging in the wrong place. They weren't focused on where the action is, where they should be focused, and that is on the entrepreneurial economy, on startups and entrepreneurs and their unique policy needs. Um, and uh, I ended up uh, doing a, a project that summer uh, with colleagues of mine at the forum to try to get at why this four-decade decline in new business formation was happening. We traveled the country. We did roundtables with entrepreneurs in 12 states around the United States. It was an absolutely transformative experience for me, changed the course of my career. I ended up uh, writing a book about it. And when I was uh, finishing that book, and in the book, we basically recount what entrepreneurs all over the country told us is in their way and took a first crack at a policy response to respond to that. It occurred to me there was no organization in Washington, D.C. that was whose mission was dedicated to educating policymakers about the importance of entrepreneurs and startups to economic growth, job creation, opportunity, et cetera, that they are in trouble for a number of reasons, why they're in trouble and what to do about it. Uh, and working with policymakers on a policy agenda to address those realities. So I decided I was, as I say, I was the CEO of the forum at the time, and I decided this is the big idea of my lifetime. I mean, as a policy guy, it was just irresistible. You know, I mean, nobody's <laughs> focused on this, and we've yeah. discovered something enormous. You, you found the gold, man. Like we no found one knows it. where it is. Yeah. And so I, I, uh, uh, much to the chagrin of my wife, um, I decided to. <laughs> leave the forum and become an entrepreneur, uh, to take an enormous personal and professional risk to follow my passion, which was, um, you know, to really improve the country by working with policymakers as an advocate for entrepreneurs and startups. Whew. That's my story. Wow. That's a big chunk to <laughs> digest. <laughs> I got to take a step back here. One, I got to just say thank you for, for, for actually doing the research and doing the math and digging into it because a lot of a lot of communities they don't know how to generate you know economic growth they tend to rely on regulation and put all these you know I mean I'm in San Francisco and San Francisco's just got a litany of barriers in the way of entrepreneurship and small business and it's because of, I don't know if it's because of fairness or is because policymakers don't understand that small businesses are way different than big, you know, big box businesses like Salesforce and Twitter and all these sort of like totally different like mindset. Um, and I really just appreciate the fact that you found this nugget that I, I agree with you. You know, I, I could never put it as eloquently as you did, but I just see how it's such a transformative attitude and mindset when you're like, let's build things that are going to make us all better. And let's, let's just figure out how to do that. And, you know, um, we were talking before we started recording about Victor, Victor Huang, I think is his name for, uh, at the organization, right to start, right. um, which, you know, his analogy on all this is like a sports analogy. It's there's players, there's teams, and there's the league. And it's just his his analogy is perfect. It's like entrepreneurs are the players, companies are the teams, and the government is the league, and the league's broken. We got to fix the league. And I just like wow, like you're so right. Like what 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 has been the the challenge with that? I mean, what what politico congressman, 
whatever local politician doesn't want economic growth. <laughs> That's like their whole thing. How, how, how has it been? How's the response been when you talk to people about this? So we spent the, um, I would say the first six or eight months out of the gate. And I should say that we launched in July of 2017. So we're about three and a half years old now. Um, which it's 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 hard for me to believe that we've been uh, doing it for that long. Uh, uh, when we started, you know, uh, we were entrepreneurs. We call ourselves policypreneurs, um, and it was a huge risk. We took a, a leap of faith, like all entrepreneurs do. So it's been uh, tremendously gratifying that we've survived uh, for three and a half years. But we spent the first uh, six to eight months uh, living in the congressional office buildings, uh, introducing ourselves to all of the relevant uh, members of Congress uh, who were on the relevant committees and their senior staff uh, and preaching the gospel, you know, essentially uh, connecting the dots in their heads of what I just ran through in terms of the importance of startups and entrepreneurs to uh, innovation, economic growth, job creation, expanding opportunity, rising wages, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly as you said, all the things that policymakers care about or should care about, say they care about. Um, it took us a while, but uh, because you know this understanding of those things was new to them, you know, just as it was new to me. Um, but uh, the answer to your question is, we've had a tremendous response, as as you would expect and as you would hope. Um, it, it's a new way to think about these things, and in a way that that I think uh, is uh, uh, is very bipartisan. Uh, uh, who's not for American entrepreneurship? It's like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, who's not for mom and apple pie? I mean, you it's know, the so, most American mom apple pie thing you can think yeah, of. Yeah, it's, it's, it's who we are, not just as an economy, it's who we are as a nation. I mean, if you think about it, America itself uh, is an incredibly entrepreneurial uh, country based on uh, uh, remarkable principles uh, 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 political and economic principles, uh, and steeped in uh, values of self-determination, self-actualization, building something—the frontier. You know, it's so American. It just it taps into our our American psyche in a way that I think is it has intuitive political appeal. Uh, policymakers have responded to it uh, very, very well, uh, and and the the most vivid examples of that. Uh, that I think your your, your uh, listeners will be interested in. Prior to CA launching, um, as an example of the extent to which entrepreneurship was not even on the radar screen in Washington, there had never been an entrepreneurship caucus in either chamber of Congress ever. Now, uh, for those of you who don't work and live in Washington, uh, caucuses are best thought of as a club kind of in Congress. They're they're uh, informal frameworks around which uh, members of Congress who are interested in a particular topic can organize, educate themselves, hold events, hold hearings, hold inquiries. And most importantly, the membership of the caucuses are kind of a a, a first go-to list of potential co-sponsors for legislation having to do with that topic. Uh, so they are a, they're an informal but very important part of the policy uh, making machinery on the Hill. Um, and there's a caucus for everything under the sun. Uh, two of my favorite examples are there is a river caucus, sorry, a river trade caucus, <laughs> and there is an unexploded ordinance caucus. <laughs> just to give you, just to give you a sense of how how, well, how I'm glad they're working on that. Like yeah, I'm glad, <laughs> exactly. You know, 
Well, no, I didn't know that was a problem, but I'm glad someone I'm is working glad on someone's it. Someone's working on it. Yeah. It just goes to show you that there's a caucus for everything under the sun. And so it was a stark uh, omission and oversight that there had never been an entrepreneurship caucus in either chamber. And we fixed that. Uh, it was uh, one of our, our first formal goals. Um, and we established the Senate Entrepreneurship Caucus in March of 2019. Amy Klobuchar. Uh, uh, from uh, Minnesota is the Democratic co-chair. Tim Scott of South Carolina is the Republican co-chair. And then we established the House Entrepreneurship Caucus uh, in October of 2019, just a few months before COVID hit. So, so we now have those two very important pieces of the policy apparatus, of, if you will, on the Hill in place. And those two caucuses have already been productive in terms of introducing uh, legislation, uh, 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 which we can certainly talk about it if you think your folks would be interested in a couple of the pieces of legislation. Oh, so, yeah, let's definitely talk about that. I think so. I mean, the response on the Hill, uh, uh, to answer uh, your question, has been uh, quite remarkable. And um, I think that 2021, uh, uh, with the incoming new Congress, the incoming Biden administration, with both of the caucuses in place on the Hill, and given the backdrop of COVID-19 and its damage to the economy, and therefore the need to accelerate uh, the recovery, economic growth, job creation, et cetera, puts entrepreneurship front and center. So uh, this year is going to be a very big year for entrepreneurship policy. Yeah, I hope so. Because I do think that's going to be the one of the only ways we recover. I, I can't... You know, I look around like San Francisco, I mean, anyone in their local community, you know, walk around, right? Look at the small businesses that are closed or shuttered. Some of the, I mean, San Francisco has got a pretty big brain drain right now. Everyone's moving to Miami or Austin and whatever, because for whatever reason, but, you know, it's those small businesses, those entrepreneurs that took a chance, took a risk. You know, and I always say that as entrepreneurs, we're given the honor, actual honor to go off in the world and try to figure something out. And honestly, society gives us a little bit of a break. I mean, it does. Like we we kind of live on the edge and I think we need a little bit more support and we really need to be more that it's not just the tech bros that are like, you know, all the ones that are just filthy rich and like have all this, you know you know, the, the disparity between incomes is so vast. That's not the spirit of being an entrepreneur. The entrepreneur is the hardworking blue collar type who just wants to do something better for himself and his family, wants to build an independent life that completes them and help their community. And so what, what are some of these policy? I mean, I honestly, like I've just started getting into like, I mean, I does some political stuff, not much on policy stuff, but it's super fascinating. So I want to nerd out on the policy a little bit. What are some of the policies that they're going to come up with in 2021? So uh, it, first, it, just by way of background, our policy agenda um, is quite broad. And we uh, decided as an organization at our initial uh, uh, meetings of our board to engage on the full waterfront of issues rather than just picking one or two. There was a big debate internally as to whether we ought to go narrow or go broad. Uh, I argued that we should go broad, uh, both for a couple of reasons. One, uh, you know, at even if you're for a wide range of topics, you're only actively engaged on a couple at a time because there's just, you know, uh, um, 
a, a limit both to your bandwidth and in terms of where there's interest on the part of policymakers. That you know they they can't be active on everything at the same time. And plus, it's also important to teach policymakers. Part of our purpose is to engage them, to educate them on the importance of startups and entrepreneurs and all of the issues that are relevant to them and how those issues interact uh, and overlap. So it was important to, to be for all of the relevant issues. And the way that we structure our policy agenda, uh, in part because we think it's a very effective way to teach policymakers, is we just we, we ask a very simple question. What do entrepreneurs need to thrive? They need great new ideas. They need the talent and the capital to pursue those ideas with as few unnecessary or stupid distractions as possible. And, and, the, and that last category or two is regulatory and tax complexity, burden, and, and uncertainty. Yeah. So, yeah. so under those five buckets, new ideas, talent, capital, regulatory policy, and tax policy, there are a number of issues. Uh, fronts that we're actively engaged on. So in the new ideas category, you have things like uh, uh, research and development policy. As a matter of fact, I just submitted an op-ed to the New York Times on on the nation's R&D policy, uh, which is in uh, terrible need of augmentation. We have not been doing enough on the R&D front for many uh, decades, and we need to get back into the game uh, to uh, uh, retain our position as a global uh, innovation uh, leader and to meet, frankly, some of the strategic challenges being posed by China. Um, but R&D policy, tech transfer policy, commercialization policy, all of the all of the policies and procedures and programs that go into the the commercialization of federally funded innovation. That that's a complicated topic um, with lots of issues, and that's the first part of our agenda under that uh, ideas category. Um, lots of of issues pertaining to talent. Um, it's education reform. It's workforce training and readiness. It's immigration policy. Um, uh, other other issues that are in entrepreneurs' way: student debt. Um, healthcare, childcare, retirement security, all of these things that make becoming an entrepreneur hard and more risky. Um, it's much harder and much more uh, risky from like a life risk standpoint to be an entrepreneur in the United States than it is to be an entrepreneur in Europe. And the COVID pandemic has really thrown that reality into stark relief. And one of the most vivid examples of that, which I'm sure you're uh, familiar with, Jari, um, is the impact of the lack of a national child care policy on women entrepreneurs and oh, the, the yeah. disproportionate it's, burden it's, of, of, yeah, it's, it's terrible. It's, I mean, it's, it's, so it's criminal, it's criminal, honestly. I mean, my, my fiance is a single mom. Thank God she works for a great company that, um, you know, they kind of handle some of that, but I mean, the net loss of jobs, I think has been all women, like literally leaving the workforce because they got to make a decision. Do I take care of my kid or do I work? And, you know, traditionally men make more than women for a bunch of different reasons. A lot of which are like not cool, but they had to make a decision, <laughs> you know, it's like, and that's, yeah, it's horrible. I mean, I just, yeah, I think, I think that, so, sorry to interrupt, but that, 
No, it's a major. It's a major topic, a major and you're exactly issue. right. Major issue. The, uh, there has been a lot that's been uh, uh, written about, talked about, discussed since the onset of the COVID crisis that the jobs loss burden of this pandemic has fallen disproportionately on women, um, and so we know that. Um, but remarkably, uh, if, if your listeners uh, recall, last Friday we got the um, a December jobs report which for the first time in a number of months actually went backwards. We're now losing ground in the job uh, on the employment front again. The economy lost 140,000 jobs in December. And get this, every single one of those lost 140,000 jobs, the BLS reported were women. Yeah. Every single job loss in December was 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 born by a woman. Yeah. Um, we did. Uh, I I mentioned a moment ago um, that we established the Senate Entrepreneurship Caucus in March of 2019. The very first activity that we arranged for the caucus at the request of Amy Klobuchar and Tim Scott uh, was to do a roundtable of women entrepreneurs. Uh, at the Capitol focused on the unique burdens and challenges of women entrepreneurs. So we contacted and flew into Washington, 22 uh, women founders from all over the United States, held a two-hour roundtable. It was absolutely fabulous. And and one of the things that became very clear, a large part of the discussion focused on these life risk issues, healthcare, childcare, student debt, retirement security, um, that uniquely burden uh, women entrepreneurs. Um, and that's a very, very important thing, uh, uh, a priority of ours uh, to address, uh, uh, because if we want higher rates, if we want to turn around the four-decade decline in entrepreneurship, we need much higher rates of participation in entrepreneurship among uh, women and people of color. Entrepreneurship in America remains uh, uh, principally white and male. Yep. There's nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with white and male entrepreneurs, but we need a lot more uh, women and people of color who are are entrepreneurs. It's an important um, uh, uh, aspect of our work. But getting yeah. back to the um, the policy agenda, so we just talked about talent, um, capital, all kinds of issues pertaining to capital, access to capital from uh, banks, access to capital by, uh, from angel investors, venture capitalists, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Then on the regulatory policy front, there there are the uh, the the basic objective is to reduce and streamline uh, regulatory burden complexity and uncertainty and then there are a number of aspects of the tax code that are either hostile to um, well, I, I, I was going to say that they are either not uh, promoting of, sufficiently promoting of, but are actually hostile to startups and the people who invest in them. And so our policy agenda items under that uh, category are obviously to um, uh, dismantle and eliminate those uh, problems that the tax code becomes um, uh, much more supportive of uh, startups. Uh, so um, so as I said, we're, we're, we're active on the full range of issues uh, relevant to entrepreneurs that the uh, uh, three of the specific policy issues that I can tell you about just really uh, quickly in terms of pieces of legislation that we've been involved in in recent months. Uh, one and 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 uh, some of these uh, are or most of these are relevant to the policy response regarding COVID, but are also important to uh, 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 American innovation and entrepreneurship generally. One, uh, there's a bill called the Endless Frontier Act that was introduced in uh, May, I believe, by. 
uh, Chuck Schumer uh, from uh, New York on the Democratic side, Todd Young of Indiana on the Republican side in the Senate, and was introduced uh, in the House by Mike Gallagher uh, and Ro Khanna. Um, and and uh, the Endless Frontier Act would augment our research and development that I was talking about earlier uh, to the tune of $100 billion. Uh, and it would also establish about a dozen innovation centers around the United States focused on different aspects of the national innovation strategy. So a very, very important bill from the standpoint of America's innovation and entrepreneurship uh, leadership in the world and our ability to compete uh, with, with China and other economic competitors. Um, the new Business Preservation Act um, is one that we worked on with Senator Klobuchar, and it was introduced in March uh, by Senators uh, Klobuchar, Coons, Keynes, and King, and then also introduced in the House, uh, also in March, about a week after it was introduced in the Senate. Um, as you know, Jari, uh, uh, venture capital in the United States is highly concentrated. About 80 to 85 percent of it is in three cities, the, where you are in San Francisco and New York and Boston. Uh, leaving uh, the remaining 15% or so to be shared by the rest of the 47 states in the uh, country. It's something that we hear about all the time uh, at roundtables that we continue to do with uh, uh, with entrepreneurs. Um, we uh, uh, So the New Business Preservation Act borrows on an idea that Israel used back in the late 90s, um, um, if you've read Startup Nation uh, uh, about Israel, uh, chapter 10 is about a program called Yozma, uh, which is Hebrew for initiative, um, and was a program by which Israel attracted um, American venture capitalists. You know, venture capital at that time in, in the late 90s was uh, almost entirely a U.S. industry, um, uh, and Israel had lots and lots of startups, but no venture capital. Uh, at that time. And the way that they uh, incentivized or lured American venture capitalists to come to Israel and look around and consider investing is they offered a one-to-one -one match with private dollars that would be invested in promising startups in Israel and would be matched up with a dollar of Israeli taxpayer uh, uh, money. The effect of that is to lower the hurdle rate by half, ramp up the aperture of potential returns. And then they did some clever things on the backside in terms of exits that were very favorable uh, to the venture capitalists. The long and the short of it is it jump-started the Israeli uh, venture capital industry, it was hugely successful from the standpoint of the entrepreneurial community and very profitable for the Israeli taxpayer. Um, uh, the New Business Preservation Act would borrow that, that very same idea and will offer a one-to-one -one match of, of taxpayer dollars with private uh, venture capital dollars that are invested in promising startups outside of those three major venture capital centers in an attempt to create very attractive investment circumstances for venture capitalists to encourage them or incentivize them to get on planes, trains, automobiles, and get out of the three major uh, venture centers and, and, um, and consider investing in promising startups in the heartland. Um, the third piece, uh, the third bill is, uh, is something called the Ignite American Innovation Act. And this is in direct response uh, to the pandemic and the fact that PPP and the Fed's Main Street Lending Program uh, are not really good fits for startups for various uh, reasons. Uh, you might recall all of the anxiety when PPP was rolled out that venture-backed startups might not be able to you know, be oh, yeah. uh, uh, eligible was, to participate in the program. I was on a phone call because I was at a, I mean, I'm still sort of part of a startup. I was on a phone call trying to figure that out and it was completely unclear. Yeah. Because of some 
there was some law or whatever about control and what's this control. And you're just like, really? Like there was yeah. a lawyer trying to figure it out. And they're like, yeah, we kind of don't know. And you're like, really? Like, come yeah, so on. We were, <laughs> yeah. So we were very, very involved um, in the first, I don't know, four to six weeks after the rollout of PPP and troubleshooting PPP on behalf of startups. I was like you, I was on the phone with uh, members of our board who are venture capitalists or work with entrepreneurs saying, help, help. You know, we don't know what, you know, how these rules apply to us. And so we were very uh, fortunately, you know, had contacts both on the Hill at the relevant committees that wrote PPP and then in the Treasury and the SBA who were responsible for administering the act. And we were able to get answers and clarification and suggest answers and clarification to them based on the impact, uh, the input that we were getting from our, our members of our board. Um, but, but as another way of getting capital to startups, that would be uniquely for startups because startups are different. As you know, most startups don't make any money uh, in, in the initial years, sometimes depending on the industry. If it's a biotech you know, company that you know, they may not have any uh, uh, real income for you know, 10 or 15 years. Um, but if you don't have income, you don't have an income tax liability. And if you don't have an income tax liability, you can't write off against that liability, things like, you know, tax sets, tax assets like uh, uh, net operating losses and R&D tax credits. Uh, so you're disadvantaged. Uh, this is a perfect example of how the tax code disadvantages or is actually hostile to startups given their unique circumstances. Uh, so startups have these assets on their balance sheets that are trapped because they don't have an income tax liability against which to apply them. So the Ignite American Innovation Act uh, would uh, amend the tax code to allow startups uniquely to monetize those tax assets by essentially cashing them in to treasury even before they're profitable um, and get and get the value. In some uh, uh, cases, it's millions of dollars uh, as another way of getting badly uh, needed capital to startups that in a way that is separate and apart from PPP or the Fed's uh, uh, lending program. So those are just um, three examples of some of the pieces of legislation that we've been active on um, since COVID, but there are other examples. Whoa, that's... Uh... That's substantial. <laughs> I mean, it's been, it's been a busy year. Well, yeah, and and I think what's so what, what's interesting, and you know, we had talked a little bit about this before, is that most entrepreneurs are like too busy to get involved with stuff like this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I always think that if you're if you're too busy to do anything, that you're doing the wrong things because uh, you know you got to have some time to, you know, build your community and help your community. I mean, even. Even here in San Francisco, they'd have these merchant groups. I remember because I helped form one and no one wanted to be on the merchant group because they were too busy. But you're like, this merchant group is your advocate at City Hall. They're not going to listen to you if you, you know, because we we knew this through community organizing that like neighborhood associations were very powerful. Like San Francisco is just full of these little neighborhoods. But if you had an organized group of neighbors, boy, you could get stuff done. But these, these, um, these, you know, merchants associations would just never go anywhere because they're like, oh, we're too busy running our business. But you're like, you need these things. And and I know that's been a problem here during the pandemic. And, and that's why Mayor Breed, she actually uh, put together uh, an economic recovery task force to like give these good ideas. And it's literally because it's like, we don't know what to do. Yeah. What do you need? And finally, you know, that and it did a lot of good stuff. There was a lot of cool things that came out of it. I I was actually on that. So I was 
really honored to be part of the part of that process and see kind of how that policy stuff gets made. It's totally different world. <laughs> it's like, yeah, whoa. I mean, it's, I'm glad it's, more it's, people are there. <laughs> and, and, and it is, it is very uh, different from the startup world. The startup world is get it done t- you know, today, fast, efficiently. Uh, the policy world is cumbersome and, and deliberative by design. And it's, it's by design because uh, our system of government is, you know, has all these checks and balances and, and division of powers to avoid the principal problem that we fought a revolution against, and that's tyranny, right? So our system of government that was subsequently uh, designed is to is shared power, shared authority, and you know the planets really have to line up. Yeah. Uh, to get anything done. I mean, if you think about what yeah. it takes to pass a bill, yeah. you know, I mean, it's got to it's got to be, you know, you know, introduced and debated in the committee. It's got now the committee has to vote on it. It's got to be passed out, you know, by a majority vote of the committee. Then it goes to the floor if it goes to the floor. But it's got to go, go to the floor. It's got to be debated and voted on on the on on the House floor. And then it goes to the Senate. Same thing has to be go has to happen in the Senate. They have to agree. If they don't agree, they have to go to a conference to work out their differences. And then it goes to the president. And he may not sign it. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's, you know, yeah, it yeah. is, uh, it can be very frustrating for innovation and entrepreneurship people to get involved in public policy. And I mean, to be perfectly candid, part of the reason why we uh, started CAGRE is because, you know, the innovation and entrepreneurship community before us, to the extent they were involved at all in policy in Washington is they would basically get animated about a particular topic like immigration policy is one that you know was a, a policy favorite of the innovation community for good reason um, and they would get all spun up about about that uh, issue they would descend on washington in mass they'd all get on airplanes and fly to washington they'd storm capitol hill they'd meet with their congressmen and senators and they might even testify at a hearing they would they would shake their finger and we've got to change this and nothing would happen for a while and it was all this debate and took a long time and they you know eventually throw up their hands declare what washington broken and leave and that's exactly how you don't get anything done oh and um you and are so, <laughs> you know, telling so, me so, no i i agree i mean no, it, that's the thing that I've always tell entrepreneurs. I, I always think that, you know, government's not meant to be efficient. It's meant to be fair or as right. fair as it Precisely. can be. And that's why there's a process and it's right. frustrating. But part of the process is not to just throw your hands up and say stuff's broken. It's, you know, supporting people like you and the Center you know, for American Entrepreneurship and like have them, the smart guys that know the process, tell us what you want and we'll go fight for it because that's what we do. And, and that's why it's so just so powerful and so important that you've, you know, you've built these caucuses, you've kind of got this center that's like, okay, this is what we need. And we as entrepreneurs need to support that. I mean, put the money in, you know, if you have to wave your finger in front of Congress, like step up, don't, don't just say it's someone else's problem. That that's the one thing here in San Francisco that's just frustrating because what'll happen is some entrepreneurial person will be like, "Oh, government's broken. We can fix it with technology." And then it's like, "No, that's not the way it works." And then right. they get frustrated and they go away. They don't volunteer or whatever. And I think the education process of that. I hope not only are you educating Congress on entrepreneurship. It'd be great if you could educate entrepreneurs on Congress and like, how can they get involved? This is the process. Don't get frustrated. Don't, don't be this one and done, you know, fly Zuckerberg and, you know, Dempsey over here to wave their finger. Like 
have a concerted effort, have a plan, work the plan. And like, it's a process and it's been this way for 250 years. So it's, you know, we're, it's here for a reason. Don't wave your finger at it. Learn to embrace it and learn to work with it. Yeah, I think that I think that's exactly right. And it's it's uh, you know, it, it should be vividly uh, evident uh, with all of the issues confronting uh, the nation right now that that policymakers in Washington and the nation on their behalf um, need the input of the innovation and entrepreneurship community. We need you all to be engaged. Um, and, um, and it's, and it's part of our collective responsibility. And it's an aspect of the, of your book that you wrote the entrepreneur ethos, you know, that, that, uh, you know, the principal responsibility of the entrepreneur, you know, you know, certainly is to their business, their employees, but th there is a broader context here. We're all Americans, but we're all part of this, this, this great, uh, national experiment in self-governance. It's fragile as we have all learned, uh, in the last week or 10 days, um, as I sit here talking to you right now, I just stepped away from the House debate as to whether or not the president of the United States ought to be impeached for the second time, first time that that's ever happened in our country. Uh, we live in times of enormous challenge, uh, socioeconomic and technological and climate you know, related challenge. We need the innovation and entrepreneurship community involved in contributing to public policy you know, the principal reason why we started the Center for American Entrepreneurship was to facilitate that relationship by serving as a liaise between the innovation and entrepreneurship community and Washington policymakers. And that's why I'm so glad to be on your show, to be able to tell uh, your listeners about us and what we do, invite their participation and input. Um, and I hope they will uh, stay in touch with us and um, share their ideas. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to you coming out to San Francisco to do one of these entrepreneur roundtables because, yes, indeed, you know, it, like, <clears throat> you know, it's it's funny because, you know, I, I've been involved with local politics um, at various levels and it's it's frustrating and there's a lot of ego and there's a lot of, you know, some people don't have the purest of intentions, I guess you could say, and they fight about stuff and they call each other names. And it's like part local of the politics. Process. Local politics is the most vicious. Of, yeah, of it's all. brutal. It's brutal. I mean, if you, I used to be uh, more involved. I used to live uh, north of New York City and I was involved in local politics uh, in my county and people will go you know, toe to toe over the placement of a stop sign. Yeah, no, it's silly. I mean, it's <laughs> San Francisco is... I mean, I was on this Muni, um, the Muni, which is the municipal transit, uh, the buses and the, and the subway stuff here. Not BART, BART's separate, but we have trolleys. And, and I was on this Citizens Advisory Council, and it's all about Muni and all, you know, and I'm just sitting there. And we're and we we're like an advisory to the main board. So we like, this is the citizens' input to policy, right? And I was on it for a couple of years. And I just was completely blown away by the what you would think would be trivial and the debate on like where to put a muni stop where to move like we have these we have these bikes these city bikes um now lyft i think owns them where to put where to remove park here parking is like the third rail of politics <laughs> like everyone like parking why are you going to take parking because you know it's hard to park here but like oh where are you going to like remove parking to put these bikes and the bike coalition they're just a bunch of you know awful people that all they they hate cars and you're just sitting there going 
And I mean, we're in this like a public meeting and I'm like, oh, this is going to take forever. We're going to be here for four hours just talking about bike lanes, you know? Um, but I will say the the beauty, the beauty of that process is, I mean, people were really like the people on the board that I served with, they were really considerate and they were like really trying hard to do the right thing and like debate and this and that. Some, so of course, some had their own agenda and that's why you wanted diversity of thoughts and feelings. And that's why I think, you know, this entrepreneur thing is like Democrat, Republican, libertarian, like how could you not be on board with this? Like, just put it aside, man. Like, come on, like people are suffering, like bury that silly stuff. But, um, and you're right. You're right that, um, you know, when you're in the midst of a struggle, you know, over a particular issue, where to put parking or the city bikes you were talking about, which is important, you know, for a quality of life in a city, or when you're talking about immigration policy, you're talking about, you know, an angel tax credit or the, uh, you know, some other idea with members of Congress as we do. Um, it, it is easy sometimes, uh, you know, to get discouraged, get cynical, uh, but but when you step back, I mean, I have to tell you, as somebody who has worked in Washington now for a long time, even during you know very very uh, difficult periods like the financial crisis and now the COVID crisis, there is a majesty. I mean, there's no other word for it. There is a majesty to the process and the framework. Um, and I think um, you know, watching the for those of us who have the privilege, and it really is a privilege for those of us who have the privilege of living and working in Washington. Uh, at policy organizations or who work on the Hill, like my wife, um, uh, we're in the Capitol a lot. You know, we we uh, we, we go to meetings in the Capitol. We walk through the Capitol. We, we go to events in the Capitol. Um, and um, and I and I can tell you, uh, I was on the phone a lot with a lot of people since uh, the assault on the Capitol a week ago, and every single one of them. Uh, expressed the sentiment, and I actually wrote a short column that I, I posted on our Twitter account, which for those who are interested is Startups USA Org, at Startups USA Org, and follow me on Twitter and CA on, I mean on on LinkedIn and CA on LinkedIn, it's there too. Um, all of us who who live and work in the capital, no matter how many times we've been there, uh, you you walk through or you walk into the Capitol, even if it's the 5,000th time that you have, with this, it takes your breath away. Um, you, it, uh, totally. you, you, you have this sense of wonder, this sense of reverence. Um, and for those of us who have that experience on a, almost a daily basis, uh, to see that building overrun and defiled the way it was a week ago, I mean, it, 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 it brought me, it brought my wife to tears. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's you awful. walk through the rotunda and you recall that in just the last few years, uh, people like Senator John McCain, John Lewis, Elijah Cummings, George H.W. Bush, Ruth Bader Ginsburg have lain in state yeah. in that grand space. Yeah. Um, and it's, um, it's sacred. It, sacred. It, and it is sacred. <clears throat> and, it, and that's not an exaggeration. That, that no. is the perfect word. And it's because it's not just the building. It's because of what the building stands for. Um, there is a there is a true majesty to our system um, for, for for all of its faults and imperfections, um, and we should all be very proud of it. It's a remarkable thing, and um, um, we should all avoid uh, getting cynical and recommit ourselves to it because it is a wonderful thing. Yeah, 
No, and and it's not going to be taken down by a bunch of knuckleheads that are right. misguided by silly things. And just you know, we we need to remember that and not be cynical and and really you know we need to listen to dissent and we need to be open and have some sure. empathy and some compassion. But you know, when it you got to draw the line, you know, because and the, there's a standard and the standard is the standard. It's been the standard for a long time. And we have to uphold the standard. Each and every one of us has to uphold the standard. I mean, it's the same thing when you walk into San Francisco City Hall, you know, maybe not as majestic as as the Capitol, but you walk in and you get this real sense of like meaning. And, you know, I mean, that's where Moscone got shot, where Harvey Milk got shot, where there's a lot of stuff happening where there's been protests, but generally, you know, you you have some faith in the institution and and to to not respect that, I mean, you can disagree with it and whatever you believe, you know what, look, I get it. Some people are like never going to be convinced. You're never going to convince the radicalized 1% of the whatever on either side of that you're right. It's the mushy middle that are the ones that sway the world, right? And But to not have reverence for that and the respect of all the people that have died to preserve what we just literally take for granted. Yep. That, yep. I mean, like, you know, you got to step up. And and you got to follow the process, and you just can't make up this wild stuff. Like it's, it, it's it's. I mean, it is borderline criminal. I, I just don't, I can't like grasp. You know, it, it's just not very. One, it's not very presidential, statesman like, and to feed that frenzy, it, it undermines the very core of who we are. Yeah, and, agree. And and as entrepreneurs, especially, I mean you know, we benefit from this rugged individualism, freedom, kind of like frontier attitude. I mean, you know, we fought a lot of wars for that. A lot of people have died, a lot of noble people, a lot of people that should still be here that weren't because they'd made the ultimate sacrifice. And there's some people, you know, even people I disagree with who have stepped up, done the right thing because they know like it's, it's a huge responsibility that goes way beyond any individual person. We, you know, we have allegiance to the constitution, no one person. And I think even the joint chiefs, when they sent that letter out to the military, it was like, yeah, you're right. Yeah. That's the, yep. that's the beauty. We, yep. we believe in the idea and yeah, I mean, I'd love nothing more than to come out to Washington when I can. And well, I was going to say when, when you, when you invited me out to San Francisco, w- w- which we're eager to come back, of course we've been there, but uh, we haven't been back since the, pandemic but when when we're beyond this we're, we're eager to come back but yes you, you should definitely come to washington uh, and i invite your listeners to come to washington uh, there are opportunities through cae and other opportunities to participate in washington uh, if any of your uh, listeners are interested in uh, CA events in Washington, or even the opportunity to testify as an expert uh, witness on this topic or that topic when there are congressional hearings uh, on immigration policy, on technology policy, on research and development, or all the various issues pertaining to entrepreneurs and innovation. Let us know because we we very much like to, uh, you know, we get asked by the by our contacts. Um, uh, at these committees uh, when they're having a hearing. Hey, do you know anyone who would be good to testify on this issue? So if people are interested, if you, Jari, are interested. I, I'm i I'm in. I would uh, love nothing uh, more. I will we'll actually. Be happy to, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll be happy to pass your name and contact information on. For sure. That'd be great. In fact, one of the things that I really want to do, actually, my, my fiance Minerva wants to do is we want to take her daughter to D.C. 
Sure. Because she didn't get to do that because of the pandemic. But uh, show she? her. She's 11. Oh, perfect. She's 11. And uh, just to show her, like, you know, it's, it's. I mean, when I was a kid, I went there. My dad took me. It. I mean, you're right. You just get this sense of awe. Like, you go to the Smithsonian. You go, like, walk through these things. Like, gosh, this is such a fantastic, interesting, like, experiment that's has its ups and downs, but boy, just really just fascinating. Like people, people need to do that more, like learn more about the civics and the government. I mean, especially entrepreneurs. We, we, I, all my friends like (laughs) poo-poo, like, oh God, don't even get them started. Those people away from me and my business. (laughs) Well, yeah. And, and, but I think a lot of it is just because honestly, I don't think, you know, lawmakers and policymakers just don't know that they don't, they're not in the trench. Like, they don't live it like we do. And I think you're right. Like if you live it, you have something to say, you need to tell people about it. And, you know, I, I really appreciate your time. It was just such a great conversation. I'm glad you could be on the show. I, I encourage everyone to support what you're doing. Don't just sit around and blame, get involved. However small it may be, even if you give you guys money, even if you sign a petition, even whatever it is, just like, we need to step up entrepreneurs need to step up and start taking control of our destiny, not just building our businesses and not just blaming people like step up all those big companies step up. Right. And that's why there's all these policies that are really not good for us. No matter what Twitter and Facebook say, it ain't for us. Right. So thanks again. Thank you, Jari, for having me. And if anyone would like to know more, uh, please go to our website, which like our Twitter handle, www.startupsusa.org. And please get in touch and let us know what we ought to be focused on in your input because we're here as your advocates. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. 
That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.